What's up, podcast listeners? As far as like my uh, personal career in the startup world of HR tech, this is one of the dopest people you could possibly talk to. So I had the chance to chat with Steve Cadigan. Steve is just all over the place in the coolest ways possible. Uh, one very, 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 very noteworthy uh, little 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 piece on his resume was these. He was the first chief human resource officer for LinkedIn. So it's been a blast, obviously, uh, to have a lot of my you know business focus be around LinkedIn, and then to talk to somebody who helped lead the talent expansion of LinkedIn, which is just phenomenal. Steve comes alongside HR, helps build up uh, talent organizations. He comes along and advises startups. He's he's all over TikTok. He's all over LinkedIn. He's just providing some of the most entertaining, but also really, really, really fruitful content as well too. He's got a book coming out as well that you need to take a peek at. And Steve, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for paving the way for number one, one of the greatest talent, one of the one of the greatest companies to ever be created, specifically in the talent world, for up leading that organization and doing so many other things above and beyond that as well, too. Steve, you're a stellar man, and I hope that everybody enjoys this episode just as much as I did. Thanks, Steve. Steve, thanks so much for being a guest on this podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. I, uh, I got to give a lot of love to uh, Wade Burgess for so many reasons, for being such an uh, ongoing supporter and, you know, again, uh, Steve, we'll dive into this. I know you've uh, you've had a career with a little bit of, you know, make, make, making some success with TikTok. And I think I sent Wade a TikTok and he was like, you got to reach out to Steve. So I'm fired up. We're here. This is good stuff. Yeah, no, it's great. Wade is uh, someone I call like the human connector. Like he took LinkedIn to heart. Like he probably could have built LinkedIn without LinkedIn. He's really just a natural, a good guy and good connector people. So, yeah, thrilled to be here and glad he connected us. I, I, it's so true. Every single person he's introduced me to has just been awesome, a breath of fresh air, fun to talk to. And so it's like, what, what can't that guy do? So we'll, 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 <laughs> let's, let's have a conversation for another time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Steve, give me, give me, give me the rundown. I know obviously we've got a lot to talk about in the, in the, in the talent world. We're going to have some fun with that, but just give me, give me a little bit of your life background. Gosh, uh, where do I start? So I, uh, born in America, but first uh, seven years of my life was actually in South Africa. My parents were real uh, adventurous and they took my older sister and I to South Africa when I was around two. And uh, so I grew up there for about uh, five, seven years, came back uh, to the United States. We got kicked out like a lot of Americans were in 1970. And I grew up on the East Coast in, uh, in Connecticut. Uh, my dad uh, moved sort of from the clergy to education. We worked; he was a chaplain of the school and worked his way up to be principal. So, I had an incredible luxury as a young kid to grow up on a campus of a small private school um, in sort of working class Connecticut, uh, right on the New York border. So, but a little more upstate. So it wasn't like bedroom New York City, but it was more sort of White Plains area. Um, and I lived there probably until I graduated college and great. I mean, just an unbelievable child. When you have a school, that's your playground. And I could, I was a big sports guy. So I had the gym was my gym. I had, you know, tons of fields, open space, tennis courts, baseball, basketball, um, love playing sports. Uh, went to a tiny school, uh, for college. I was very fortunate. I had a, a, a grandmother that could afford to, uh, cover most of my expenses. So what she didn't cover, I uh, covered through student loans, which I know is a big subject for lots of folks today. But I graduated uh, with about $30,000 of student loan debt, which took me about 15 years to pay off <laughs> when I graduated. 
but I was a history major in college, loved history. Uh, but if I'm honest, Matt, I probably spent more time in the gymnasium than I did the library. Um, I love there's, there's, uh, there's worse, there's worse place you could have spent a lot of time. So I guess that, that's all right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but, but you know what I didn't realize, and I had no clue what I wanted to do when I went to college with my life. And I had no clue what I wanted to do when I graduated from college. None. I just knew that I like history. I like competitive sports. Uh, I played three sports in college division three. So nothing fancy, but I played uh, baseball, basketball, my freshman year. And I was a walk-on for both, which is a fun story for another time. And then I switched to tennis my sophomore, junior, senior year. And I was sort of co-captain my senior year um, and got a chance to really, you know, enjoy my college experience. I mean, I would say it was super fun, liberal arts. Uh, but I graduated and had no clue what I wanted to do. I was dating a woman who lived in San Francisco. So she's like, hey, I'm moving back. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll give California a shot. Moved to California, uh, found a job. I feel like in a we're all good company. stories. Start. I'll give California a start, and I did it because of a woman. <laughs> so I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, all great uh, decisions in life uh, often boil down to love as the draw. Oh, hundred percent. Right? Like, sort of like there's a whole other yeah. podcast in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, uh, I came to California for love. I haven't, I haven't uh, moved since, but I did have over the course of my career two years in Singapore and four years in British Columbia, Western Canada, as part of my professional journey. But um, but anyway, probably about one year into working at this fashion company called Esprit, I, was, I started out as a credit and collections guy, and I was really good at collecting money. Uh, no surprise to my parents, of course, but I was really good at uh, building relationships with people and understanding that it's not about you know how tough you are to make them pay you, but how friendly and how uh, how much you get to know them. So. Uh, I was at that point, I was like, Hey, I, I'm really good at this collection stuff, but I don't think I want to do this for the rest of my life. I thought I was going to go to business school. So I applied and the company came to me and said, Hey, listen, instead of you going to business school, why don't you come down? We'll teach you uh, human resources, teach you how to be a recruiter. And I said to myself, well, I can go pay to learn or I can get paid to learn. I said, why don't I try this recruiting thing? It sounds like a lot of fun. And if Matt, only what, career what, advice was boiled down so simply. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, in retrospect, when I think about it, um, it was a match made in heaven. I didn't know it at the time. And what happened uh, was I discovered that everything that I love about sports was everything that recruiting could offer. It's trying to build the best team. It's trying to figure out how to organize matching people with teams and leaders and cultures and leadership styles and I loved it. I just fell in love with it. And I've always been a big sports fan, not just for you know, cheering on the teams I like, but to, to observe how people handle different situations. How do you handle being down? How do you handle a loss? How do you handle pressure situation? You know, how do you handle playing for a coach who's all up in your grill? How do you handle playing underneath a superstar when you're really good too? So all that stuff was just something I just soaked in throughout my childhood and throughout my college. And I didn't know that was actually fine-tuning a craft that I could apply professionally. And that truly uh, something that re was revealed to me the more I worked in recruiting and got into bigger roles in HR over the course of my career, I sort of discovered, and probably by the time Matt, I was probably mid-30s, I said, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I love this. And I was really hesitant about it, honestly, Matt, because I never so I worked first in fashion for four years, then I worked in the insurance industry for four years, both in HR roles. Then I got into 
Silicon Valley high tech uh, at AMD in 1990. What was it? I want to say 1994. And so I've been working for about, you know, eight or nine years. And I fell in love with the high tech culture, like fast paced, making change quickly, making decisions on the fly, really dynamic leadership, trying new things. We would never try uh, in the insurance industry. And I just kind of fell in love with it. And that's when I said, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Went to get a master's degree. So I went to University of San Francisco, got a master's in human resources, organization development. And then from there, I just you know fell in love with it even more and um, got a job, probably the coolest job I had at the time. Cisco Systems back in the late 90s was for a very short period, the most valuable company in the world, uh, like Apple is today. But they um, hired me to do M&A. So I was doing acquisition integration on the people side for companies Cisco was buying all over the world. And in four years, I worked on 50 deals in, God, dozens of countries, met really interesting people and um, doing all kinds of really interesting uh, work and, and challenges I'd never done before. So I was loving that. And then I don't know if you remember the day the dot-com bubble burst, but that was 2001-ish. And then Cisco stopped doing deals and I didn't have a job. <laughs> so I had to look deals for something all over else. the world. So all of a sudden you got, you got nothing. <laughs> right. Crazy. Nothing. And the stock of the and the stock of that company uh, was did what every other company in tech did. It just tumbled. We were trading around $82 a share, and we went down to about 9 bucks a share. It was just a complete nosedive. And I thought I was going to work there the rest of my life. I thought I was going to retire by the time I was 40. Uh, you know, time for recalibration for, for a whole industry. And so I was approached by the company and said, hey, we can't do M&A anymore. Would you like to go to Singapore? and do an international assignment. And I said, absolutely. So took a job in Singapore, um, running HR for all of Asia, about 3,000 people. And that was you know about a dozen countries where we had employees. Amazing, amazing experience. Um, and then I, so I'd been at Cisco around six years and I got approached by a company in Canada to be their head of HR. I'd never been a head of HR. And I was like, I'm ready for this. I want to be you know, in the, in the corner suite, talking to senior executives, making big decisions. And I thought it was really going to be a lot of fun. And I was right. I loved it. Moved to Canada, loved snowboarding, loved everything about British Columbia, fell in love with the people, the culture, the company. And it was a, it was a U.S. company, but it was mainly populated by Canadians. Um, we had a small, uh, relatively small U.S. presence. So did that for four years, loved it. Uh, the CEO uh, became an incredible coach and mentor to me. To this day, we're really good friends. He decides to retire. And at the same time that went down, Electronic Arts came after me to be uh, to join their team, not as the head of HR, but sort of running their M&A and they had a new CEO who wanted to get very acquisitive and buy a bunch of companies. And I thought, you know, I missed kind of that M&A stuff. So I decided to accept the offer. They relocate me back to expensive land. I mean, California. And so uh, I went back to the States and uh, very soon after that, another big economic crisis hits and that's the banking collapse of 2008. And so all EA's plans to acquire sort of got scrapped because they had to hold on to cash and they didn't want to spend it. They didn't know what was going to happen in the financial markets. So my job basically disappeared and I was stuck doing a role that I didn't really want to do. And at that time, I got approached by LinkedIn about an opportunity to be their first head of human resources. Um, and uh, so I jumped on it 
And I, you know, what everyone dreams of when you're in Silicon Valley is to jump onto a pre-IPO public company, take it IPO and, and have an incredible ride. And I got incredibly fortunate and lucky um, to be in the right place at the right time. And I was at the helm of the HR function, building the company from 400 to the, I was there for just shy of four years. We went from 400 to 4,000 people, from two offices to 26, from employees in two countries to 17 while I was there and just had uh, an amazing ride. So that was, takes me up to about eight, nine years ago. Um, I decide I am super, super exhausted and I want to take a different approach. So I decided to just leave and take a breath. I had no plans, no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and after about six months of just hanging out with my kids and coaching their sports um, more than I usually was and getting involved in the school district and volunteering, a whole bunch of people I used to work with started to ask me for help with things around culture, things around uh, organization strategy, hyper growth. A lot of the early LinkedIn founders were reaching out to me on their next adventure saying, hey, would you come in and help us think this through? And so over the course of the last eight, 10 years, I've sort of built my own practice, advising, coaching, becoming a board member, uh, writing, publishing, speaking. And that's kind of the portfolio that I've built for myself today uh, and how I spend my time. So yeah, there it is. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, first off, we're going to have, you know, five or 10 different podcasts we're going to have to run through for all of this. I mean, first off, uh, it's, <laughs> what, what, a, what an amazing story. Uh, the, the, so a couple things, early, early timeline, I'm going to, I need to probe just, just out of curiosity. So the South Africa sure. uh, jump from your parents, was that a vacation jump? Was it like a missional type thing? What was the sort of uh, two parents that decided to arbitrary uproot everything <clears throat> and go moved? It sounds like I, I, the reason why I asked that is I've got a sister and a brother-in-law who are missionaries and I'm literally waiting for them uh -huh. to go do it. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's yeah. kind of the background, but I'd just be curious what, what the tie is to that. So imagine uh, it's the 60s. Okay, I was born in 63, so it's the 60s. My parents were extremely active in civil rights. And what my dad found was a, a classmate from Divinity School was South African, uh, had a parish in South Africa, and he worked a deal because they wanted to, my parents wanted to go to South Africa. They wanted to see the world and taste it and take a bite out of life. And and so he worked a, a deal with his Divinity um um, classmate to switch roles for a year. And we were living in St. Louis, Missouri at the time. And so they just said, let's just switch for a year. And my parents were so smitten by the adventure that they decided to extend it. And we, I mean, heck, I, I might've been still living there today had it not been for us being sort of expelled from the country after <laughs> being there for about um, four years. But yeah, it was, that was the the draw for them. And, 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 you know, I was, it's funny because this morning I was reading some some old articles that were written about my dad. When he left, there were protests in the in the airport in Johannesburg of people protesting my dad and a bunch of other clergy. And as a you know, as a seven year old, you're like, why are these people protesting and what's going on? And you know, noticing it's very impressionable for me as a kid to see difference and to notice difference as a seven year old. You know, and have conversations with your parents like, why why were we kicked out and what was going on and what. Why, why didn't the government let us stay? And why do I have to go to a new country? And I was teased mercilessly by the uh, you know, fellow first graders when I started school in the US because I had a very strong South African accent. Um, and my parents jokingly tell me today that I, my older sister and I would st stay up late at night crying because we we're getting teased, but also practicing American. 
<laughs> so that we would American. fit in. <laughs> yeah. Which, which, yeah, which, which was the, the moment, yeah. the moment you get, the moment like you come out of like the teasing phase, which obviously that's not, you know, obviously that's tough childhood moments, but the moment you come out of it, you realize like, holy shit, ac- accents are awesome. Like, like there's moments that I'm sure. Yeah. Anyways, I, I, I love right. hearing different people's accents. Yeah. So what, what a change that is. Yeah. But, no, I love that. That's I know it's it's true. It's true. And it, you know, you think about your childhood. What do you try to do when you're a kid? You try to fit in. What do you yep. do when you're uh, a teenager? Well, you try to differentiate yourself and you try to stand out. At that point, I definitely wanted to fit in. And I do think, professionally speaking, Matt, I do think I think that had a hand in sort of you know my desire to sort of fit in and kind of study my new world like really, really uh, significantly. I think it impacted me to a point where it helped me professionally years later, where wherever I'm in a new environment, a new team, a new organization, I'm, I'm a very, very, you know, big, quick student of what's going on. How's this working? How's the system work? And, and so forth. And I think, I think the groundwork for that was probably that experience coming back to the U S as a young kid, you know, I, I, I totally can see. And, you know, hearing you talk about how you're, you know, you, uh, when you guys were getting ready to leave South Africa, uh, you know, there was people um, protesting, you know, your dad or, you know, the, the broader group of people. And then all of a sudden starting to ask those questions, why? And then all of a sudden getting moved into an environment where you are being teased, you know, the, the thought process. Yes, obviously, there's some cha- there's a ton of challenges and hardship with that. But also it taught you, you know, how do you live and interact with people that are different than you, which then fast forward, fast forward, fast forward to being the first, you know, human resource, uh, chief human resource officer at LinkedIn makes so much sense of why you were so talented at that. Obviously starting from a little bit of a hardship position, but I, 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 I it, it makes sense why you're so good at what you are. Well, it does, it does feed into, as you just said, fast forward, fast forward. Um, I mean, the biggest skill today, I think that's in demand is adaptability, right? Yep. And I do, I, I strongly, I've been telling you know my kids this for years. Like you need to go to, you know, go to school in a country that doesn't speak English. You need to know what it's like to be in a different culture, a different place where they see the world differently. I mean, one of the experiences I also had being in Asia was being in Singapore when the U.S. invaded, well, not invaded, but they went to war with Iraq in Kuwait because Kuwait was being invaded by Iraq. So we went in there and I'm, I'm, I'm in Singapore. And to the north of Singapore is Malaysia. And at the time, and probably still today, not very friendly towards the US. And to the west and the south is Indonesia, which, by the way, has about the same population as the United States. A lot of people don't realize that. And they really don't like Americans. So I'm, I'm working in this tiny little island, Singapore, getting text messages every day saying, at all times, remember where the embassy is. You know, and, and hey, by the way, this weekend, don't go to that American restaurant because there's been a bomb threat. You know, seeing your country through the eyes of someone else, very, very healthy to inform. Like, you know, a lot of people have never left this country and never seen your country through the eyes of another country, you know, is missing an incredible opportunity to sort of like have your head explode, if you will, you know, in a certain way. And that was really, you know, eye-opening for me. It was eye-opening to hear things like in Singapore, I would say like, when you say Asian, like who are you referring to? They said, well, we're not referring to Chinese. Chinese are Chinese. But in Singapore, when they say Asian, they also mean people that we call Indians from India, right? So it just so like everyone's language, frame of reference, like so, so dramatically different. And play, play that forward. When I was on the executive team at LinkedIn, 
and we were growing like crazy. I was the only executive, believe it or not, of 13 who lived and worked in another country. And that led me to have to get into a lot of arguments and battles and challenges because they would want to do things in a certain country. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not how we, we cannot do that in Australia. No, no, no. We cannot do that in France. Like you don't understand that doesn't translate. That's American speak, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And that's, you know, for all the listeners out here, you get a chance to go taste life um, and the, the experience from, from the world from a different lens. It will inform you dramatically uh, in, in, in deep ways that you probably don't even appreciate now to, I think, make you a better leader, better person for sure. That's so good. And that's such, such a good word too. Um, one, uh, one offshoot and then I got, I got a whole slew of questions I want to fire at you, but, uh, one, sure. one, one, one history, uh, for you is, uh, you said you were, uh, you, uh, made the switch to tennis, um, towards the second half of your college career. Yeah. Uh huh. Yep. Have you, have you adopted pickleball in the popularity of pickleball? Absolutely not. I swear. <laughs> I, I look at that the way a, a baseball player looks at softball. It's like, I'm not playing softball. That's like, I'm not stepping down to that. I'm not giving in. And it'll mess you up too. Like you play pickleball. I played ping pong, a lot of ping pong and just playing ping pong. You cannot play ping pong during the tennis season because it's all wrist and yep. tennis is all locked, locked wrist except for serve. Right. So, but I haven't, are you, are you into the whole pickleball wave? So my, my, my mom has caught into caught up to it. So I play with her every once in a while, but I played tennis growing up and, uh, and I, I stopped when I was in high school cause I did football, basketball, lacrosse, and I played lacrosse for a bit. But yeah. the, the reason why I ask is my, 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 te- well, number one, obviously pickleball is everybody's you know popular and tennis players seem very split about it. They either are your reaction yeah. of no way I'm touching that. Nope. I'm sticking to tennis <laughs> or, or this is way easier on my body. I'm never touching tennis again. And it seems like that's been yeah. the, the reaction. And uh, I, my, uh-huh. my, my sister was a phenomenal tennis player and she played in college and did D3 school and was a standout. And she sucks at pickleball because it's so different. It's hilarious to watch. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, so so that was my that was my brief curiosity on that. So <laughs> yeah, cool, very cool. So the one one of the questions I want to ask you is kind of the transition into recruiting, and obviously one of the things I was I was paying attention to in your background is all the different advisory roles that you've played into. Would you say that your mind defaults towards looking at an individual from a recruiting lens, a leader's lens, a human resource lens, and saying, I spend more time thinking how that person can evolve into a role? Or do you, would you say that you spend a lot of time thinking about, I look at somebody and I think, man, I should put them on this team or that team. Like, would you say that it's sort of fostering where people are at or imagining, uh, imagining where somebody could be? Where would your mind sort of default toward? Matt, that is a great question. That is a really good question. And I'll tell you, um, my thinking has definitely evolved. I used to think more the latter, like, oh, I can plug them in over here. Uh, And because I think people were staying in jobs longer, people were staying in companies longer, teams were more coherent. I mean, just look what's happened in professional sports. Like, I know I could list the starting lineup for the New York Yankees when I was a kid. I know every position, every player, they didn't switch. Now, every year, Every team, every college team, every pro team is completely different. And that's transcending also into, I believe, the business world where people are are changing worlds quicker. And so when I'm looking at talent today and I'm advising organizations, you you, used to be, it's funny because I I think I'm going to write a a white paper on this. And and I've done a few TikToks about this too. 
companies used to look at talent and I'm not pointing fingers at all. Cause I, I played this game too, which is I've got, I'm a company. I want to sell you on my journey as a company. And today, and this is dramatically accelerated because of the pandemic, every organization has to start with what is the journey of the individual and does that fit the journey of that we're going to have as an organization, you know, and, or even more, can that individual's journey inform a better journey for our company? So I definitely want to look two, three, four levels ahead. And, you know, you, we started this conversation because Wade Burgess connected us, you know, Wade's team at LinkedIn did something amazing. And I think they, they definitely were the tip of the spear on this. And I see more and more organizations doing this today, which is I see people starting the org, starting the interview question process by asking, so when you leave this company, where do you want to be? What do you want to be doing? Already playing as if we know this is just a part of your portfolio of your career. It's not the end game. Let's not kid ourselves. We both know you're going to leave, right? And we both know I can't promise that I will never let you go because the future is incredibly uncertain and unpredictable. So let's have an honest conversation. Where do you, where do you think you want to go? And what can I do while you're here to inform and prepare you and better you so that when you leave, you're stronger, better, and you're more excited because you're heading towards something that you want to do. And if you don't know what you want to do, what can I do while you're here to help surface new ideas and new areas that you might want to head towards in the future? So it's definitely more the, the, the former of what you mentioned, Matt, which is you know, where could this person go? And also helping people, you know, a lot of, there's so many choices people can, you know, pursue career paths. There's so many different things they can do because we're so much more aware. And LinkedIn's partly to, to, uh, to take credit for that, that, we can show you that with a history degree, you know, you can go into human resources. Whereas like when I was in college, like history degree, like, hey, do you want to teach? No. Do you want to be a historian? No. Well, then why'd you major in history? Like, so now I can see like, hey, there's 700 career paths a history major can take. You follow me? So I think it's really, you know, we're, we're in a world where people are, you know, have the opportunity and the blessing of more choice and more options. And so let's be real about that, I, I think. And let's have a more honest conversation and try to help people, you know, navigate this, you know, huge world of choice uh, when it comes to careers. I love that, and I want to double click on uh, on the se- the last last bit of what you just the last bit, excuse me, of what you just asked. So mm-hmm. you're you're obviously very active on TikTok, which is awesome. And my hypothesis, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the audience that may absorb that may be a little bit on the younger side of people on the. And, and please give me pushback on that, but that'd be my that'd be my guess. And the reason why I bring that up is that to your point of people have so many different options. Do you see it at all in in the in the talent landscape in the just career path landscape that that's almost crippling to people that they don't they have almost too many choices? Because I it, it, this r- real quick, but my my thought would be people entering into the workforce or people currently in jobs are almost crippled with comparison of all these different cool things that they could go do, but they have no idea where to start because it's so many different options. Have you, is that, am I, am I blown wind, you know, sort of thing? Yeah, you're a hundred percent. No, you're a hundred percent right. And I completely agree with you. And I actually think it's worse than crippling. Not only do we have, like you ask any salesperson, is it easier to sell a customer when there are three choices or when there's 50? And every salesperson will say when there's three and the same thing applies to careers. And I look at it like the, the, the analogy I like to make is Netflix. Okay. How many 
Friday nights or during the pandemic, how many every nights did you go on to Netflix and say, hmm, what should I choose? And an hour later, you've been watching about 45 previews. Okay. You never choose, you never chose a movie. You just watched a bunch of previews. I'm not sure I like that. I'm not sure I like, you know, I'm not in the mood for that. Or maybe that, you know, no, this is a horror movie. I want a kind of an action adventure. Oh no. My wife wants, you know, something more, you know, more drama or like you don't, you, you don't make a decision. And that's what I feel like we, we are faced today. And it's amplified by the fact that we have social media where all these people are saying, Oh, I love it over here. Oh, we've got this great pay. We've got this great perk. We've got this great benefit or we got this great celebration or this free food or this, you know, all this stuff. So you know more what you don't have today than what you do have. And you're worried about making the wrong choice or someone else has made a better choice and their, their, their career arc is maybe accelerating where yours was. And when we didn't know that before, it didn't stress us out, but now we sort of know more. And I don't think we have absorbed the impact of what that really means. I don't. You know, I, I deal with CEOs all the time. I say, what's your biggest problem today? Can't find the, great, the best talent and can't keep the best talent. And I said, well, why can't you keep the talent? And I said, because they're millennial Gen Z, short attention span, career sugar high, shopping for a promotion. And they go, you mean your children that you raised with the, the values that you raised, those kids, those are the people you're concerned about? And then the second thing I say is, you can't tell me, uh, Mrs. or Mr. Executive, that 40 years ago, if you had as much choice as they did, that you'd be in the same company 40 years later. It's just not true. There's just a different pool of opportunity that they're seeing. And, and we haven't really digested what that means yet. But let me put another, another point out there because it is, in a way, you know, we use these words crippling, it's arresting, and then we throw on top, oh my God, the robots are coming, your job's hosed, AI is going to take over everything you do. You know, cases of anxiety, depression, stress are rising around the world all over the place. We have our first unicorn in the anxiety economy, and that's called the Calm app. It's worth over, over a million dollars or a billion dollars of valuation. But, you know, we, we, we have all this stuff going on, and I think we have to step back and say, you know, we, we don't really know how this is going to play out. And the other really interesting bit of feedback, so I was giving a talk to University of San Francisco. I was asked to give a graduation talk a couple of years ago. And after the graduation talk, one of the professors comes up to me and I painted a really messy picture. People are leaving jobs faster. People are disengaged more than ever before. People are, you know, job satisfaction's down. And the professor says, hey, Steve, can you answer this one question for me? I said, sure. What is it? He goes, why is it then that U.S. companies are more profitable? And I was like, whoa, that is real. Is it true? I got show me the data. And he did. He showed me the data. It's like over the last 10 years in this messy world of work where people are changing jobs faster, where people are more actively disengaged. And we, since we've been publishing engagement scores by Gallup since the year 2000, we have companies that are more profitable. So it makes me go back and say, maybe we have overestimated the value of long retention. Maybe we've overestimated the value of people staying in one place a long time. Maybe we've underappreciated people moving and changing and bringing new experiences and seeing problems from a different perspective. Maybe we've undervalued that. You see what I'm saying? And so it's kind of interesting. Yes, it's a little bit crazy. Yes, people are moving around and, and making changes faster than ever before. And yet look at the economy. Look at the success of a lot of organizations you know, pre, pre-pandemic and hopefully we'll be, we can say we're post-pandemic at some point in the next year or two, but they're still incredibly successful. You look at Tesla, okay? Tesla, great example. Here's a company that is the most valuable company in the automobile industry by a country mile, worth more than Ford, 
Toyota and Honda combined, okay? Tesla. Now, they haven't been around as long. They're not making as much profit. They're not making selling as many cars, but they're five times more valuable than all those companies combined. Why? And oh, by the way, their employee population stays on average 2.3 years, okay? That's their median tenure. Half the company stays less than 2.3 years, and they're by a country mile more valuable than every other automobile uh, company. Why is that? Because the, the investors are betting that they can change and develop and they're more agile and they can innovate better than people who have been doing something a long time. So that gives me hope, Matt, when I think about the future. Yeah, it is kind of messy and things are changing really quickly. But, you know, the muscle that we're building and the pandemic is helping us grow this is the muscle of how can we build new teams faster, quicker? How can we get productivity faster in ways that are not as con- uh, was it, continuous or don't have as much continuity? That's the word I'm looking for. As companies that we say, oh, you can't really make an impact here unless you've been here like 10 years. You know, like we're not really going to listen to your point of view until you've been here, I don't know, maybe 20 on your 20th anniversary. No one's sticking around five or 10 years you know, anymore. So it's just, it's an interesting world of work right now, feeding right into, you know, all the folks who are listening in or in the world of talent. I mean, it is, it's a different world and we got to start retraining our brains. I firmly believe from the, Hey, people got to stay here a long time to, you know what? They're probably not. This is one truth. Every company I talk to in every geography in the world, do you think the trend of people leaving companies faster will change in the future? Everyone says, Nope, don't see it changing. So then I say, then why is every one of your benefits based on how long someone stays? Why don't you change those to make people as productive as they can be while they're here? Why don't you build an alumni program? Because if people are leaving faster than ever before, that means you've got more people that used to work here than ever before. Why don't you invest in that alumni and turn that into like a muscle that's adding fuel to the engine in the external community, sending deals your way, recommending other employees to you? But most companies are still in the what I call Tony Soprano school of HR, which is what you quit, you're dead to me. I don't even want to talk to you. And you know, it's just so, it's so short-sighted. You know what I'm saying, Matt? Oh, I, I mean, it's, it's, uh, to me, it's, it's remarkably short-sighted. The profitability thing is something I want to, I, I want to dive deeper into because that's fascinating. I, I did not know that either. And it makes, it makes yeah. complete sense. One question I've always asked myself is, uh, I mean, kind of along the same lines is, is employee turnover bad? Now, I'm sitting here as a boss of uh, boss is what a what a wildly inappropriate term, but as a uh, <laughs> found, as a as a founder of a of a of a seven uh, no sir as a, of a ten person startup right so we've got ten employees right. now um, we had uh, we had four as or five as of uh, three months ago so we're we're in growth mode and I'm thinking here myself like. Yeah, we've got 10. Uh, if we lost one, that would be a you know a huge hurt because every person matters. But then at the same time, I've been thinking to myself, like, it would be a dream come true if our organization was a place where people who wanted to launch a business but didn't quite know how to start came and worked and joined for us. And we were sort of that step to say, come join, learn all the things that we make mistakes on that when you get ready to go launch your own business, you've learned a ton from and know how to do better than we ever could. And we want to be the first round of capital or we want to be the first here. Let me introduce you to all our early stage angel investors that would love to help pursue. I mean, that would be a dream come true. And so what what you're saying kind of furthers, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. 
I love it because it's like the alumni network, whether it's alumni for better careers, whether it's alumni for the greatest sales team, whether it's alumni for entrepreneurs, whatever it is, I think I love it. It gets me fired up. So it's good stuff. Yeah. And, and so let me, let me sort of take what you just said. And by the way, I love your thinking. And yes, that is, that is a realizable dream come true. Like you can make that happen, Matt, if you want to make that happen. And how could any company think that they are the right place for someone's, the entirety of someone's career? And why, why are you even getting sad when someone leaves? Why don't you celebrate if they found something better that you couldn't even offer them? That should be like, yeah, we got them to the point where they're ready to take on something bigger outside. Great. That's awesome. Now, turnover does hurt. Like, hey, if you're, if you're trying to solve cancer or put someone on the moon, when someone leaves, that, that's going to set you back because there's real deep knowledge and real, real critical stuff that, um, that could be lost if someone goes. And, 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 and it does hurt. But if, you, if, you're, if you're digging your head in the sand and, and not recognizing that people are going to go and you're not always building and grooming new talent, I think you're going to hurt yourself. Spotify has done something pretty interesting. They're one of the companies that I, that I admire for their sort of progressive talent strategy in this highly fluid world of work. They require almost everyone in their company to change roles every two years. Now, it just so happens they've got a business where people can train and learn new things. Not every company has that luxury because some companies need real deep experts and scientists and so forth. They have a business model that allows them to do that. And so what they do, what they realized was people are vulnerable when they get stale. And this is the thing I'm trying to tell these big companies out there is like, I want you to ask yourself, when are you most excited? When were you the most excited in your career? When you've been doing the same thing for five years or when you took on something new, a little scary, a little bit outside your comfort zone? Maybe a little bit stretch role for you. And you felt excited because you're learning new stuff and you're going to be able to experience new things. And that to me is the energy that gets unlocked in all these startups that are crazy. What's happened, what happened at LinkedIn in the four years that I was there is our, and, and you might want to put your seatbelt on for this, Matt, because this is going to scare you a little bit. In the four years that I was at LinkedIn, the median tenure for the company stayed the same. It was nine months. Okay. We went from 400 to 1,000, 1,000 to two and two to four in the four years that I was there. Doubled every year, double the revenue and double the size. So what's going on in that kind of environment is you're hiring like crazy. So all your leaders like Wade Burgess and so forth, they're out closing candidates, which means their lieutenants are stepping into their jobs, taking on a bigger role that they're on paper not qualified for and they're growing, right? You never, you never want to, to build an organization where you're like pushing people out, but we both know when someone leaves, a new opportunity is created, you know, and someone gets to grow into that. If no one ever leaves and no one's ever going to have a new opportunity, like you need a certain amount of turnover. So, you know, back to your question, I think, I think it's really healthy and I think it's important to look to other, what organizations are doing. You know, I look at, I'm a, you know, I mentioned on the front end, I'm a huge sports fan and college basketball. If you follow it at the highest levels really closely, has experienced what business is experiencing now, but they experienced it about 10 years ago. And that is the, the movement from the best athletes staying at a school three to four years to the best athletes staying there six to nine months. So Coach K at Duke University has got to build a new team every year. He's got three months to make them world-class before the March Madness tournament starts. And then he knows they're going to leave if they're really good. So what, he said, what he's got to do is recruit all the time. So that's sort of lesson number one in this world where it's very fluid and people are going to leave. What do you need to do as an organization? You need to be recruiting all the time. And, and you also have to have an honest conversation 
And so what Coach K has done and a lot of other really good division coaches has done in college basketball is said, listen, the chances of you making the NBA are, are fairly slim. But if you don't make the NBA because you're a Duke alum, we're going to help you get a job as a coach, as an assistant coach, as a scout, as a broadcaster, as an analyst, or maybe, you know, help you come back and you can come, you know, teach here at Duke. Like our alumni network is strong. So even if you're only here a year, it's going to be the best year of your, you know, that you could possibly have compared to all these other colleges you could go to. You follow what I'm saying? Like, that's interesting. They pivoted from four years to build a team to six to nine months. I got to do it. And they're doing it really well. Now it's tiring. It's a lot of work. It's a new model. And this year, because of the pandemic, uh, they've got a whole, and because the NCAA changed the rules, transfers can happen without having to sit out redshirt for a year. It's even more insane that they've, they've got to look at film of other college players because they, they can transfer without having to sit out a year. Super, super interesting. But that's, you know, that's a crazy, the dynamic change for them and they're figuring it out, you know? And I think, I feel like that's happening in the business world. And the sooner an organization says, Hey, we, it's a new model. We got to adjust to that. I think the more they're going to be able to be creative and find ways to be successful in that world. So hypothetically, you know, just hypothetically, of course, let's say you were talking to the, the, the CEO of a, uh, of a 10 person tech startup that was looking to recruit talent and, uh, constantly be growing like crazy. Uh, would it be fair to say, that, you know, again, hypothetically, of course, no, no assumptions, Steve. No assumptions. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, asking so, for a friend, Matt. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Asking for a friend. Exactly. Right. So, uh, would you say that I should spend more, uh, this hypothetical scenario, uh, this person should spend more time, uh, trying to set up a network of people to say, while you're here, this is the value that you're going to get while you're here. That's going to fuel you for whatever you want to go do opposed to trying to win people over with necessarily the vision of what we're doing, or maybe even, uh, the office perks or culture or whatever you can get. Like, where should I be spending sort of my mind or, or, or just thoughts when I'm having conversations, trying to recruit, trying to bring in the best talent, both literally for open positions, but also positions we're going to be hiring for in the future? So the, here's how I would look at it. I would say it, it's, it's a little bit of all of the above, but it's never about the perks and it's never about the money. And I know that's easy for me to say, but here's how I would say it. I would frame it, go back to what I said earlier, which is, I, today, as a leader of a small organization, you need to be real clear on who you are as a business, who's right for your company, who's not right for your company, what profile is going to thrive, and what profile is not right for you. And then you got to be real clear on what are the journeys that people want to go after in your organization. You know, what, what is it? And, and it needs to be real personal. And this is the thing that I love about COVID is Everyone's had to learn more about their coworkers, their employees, their managers than ever before, because what's happening at home is real and it's going to block, it's going to inhibit, it's going to you know, prevent people from realizing their best work uh, if, if something's bothering them at home. Someone's sick, they can't get food, or you know, in, in the case of a lot of Americans, couldn't get toilet paper for a while. Like we got to solve some of these basic problems. But I think if you know the journey, then you can have an honest conversation. It's like, hey, and, and what I would, what I would want to do if I was looking at your organizations, I want to say, I'm going to grow and learn more here than all the other places I could grow and learn, you know, and that's what I want to do. And I'm going to build a network. I'm going to meet some amazing people. I'm going to work on new projects. And to me, the best elixir, the best reward, the best compensation any organization can offer is growth and caring about your future, not just caring about you when you work for me, but caring about you for your career, right? That's playing what I call the long game. And this is a huge reason why I wrote the book Workquake, which I want to share 
with the listeners before we're done today. But you know, I, I feel, and I talk about this in my book, I feel like that's a better conversation. Caring about someone for the entirety of their career is much more valuable than just caring about someone for when they work for you and, and appreciating they're probably going to go. Now, I also think the more, the, the stronger you make them, the more you invest in them, the more quality you give them, what you're doing is you're giving them career insurance for an uncertain future. Like in a world, like I don't think people want job security today. What they want is career security. That's bigger. Don't tell me you won't let me go. Tell me you're going to make me better so that even if the company goes under, our funding falls out, a customer bails on us, or some new technology disrupts ours, I'm good because I'm working on the coolest stuff with cool people. And if we fall apart or I got to leave, I'm okay. You know, I can find my way. That's a bigger promise. And I think that's how I would, that's how I would encourage, you know, folks uh, in your position, Matt, to sort of frame, like, it's a little bit rugged out there, but I would also always be looking out there, like, you know, make sure I understood what kind of person, what kind of profile, where is someone in their career journey that's best suited to come in here and kick some butt and have a great experience? You know, what does that look like? And what can I learn from the people who've had really good journeys here that might inform where I can go find those people, you know? I love that. I love that. It's so good. Um, I want to dive into the book uh, real quick. My, my one question between that, um, and then I want to I want to, I want yeah. to hear about everything you got cooking with that. So for a lot of people out there, um, this let me let me ask this as a very dummy down broad stroke question. As a <laughs> as a uh, as a uh, uh, chief executive officer in in the human resource department. So if you're overseeing human resources at sort of the grandest scale, and let's take it to the next level, you are overseeing human resources for LinkedIn, which is the stem and the platform for where all content that so many human resources people are getting information from what were you uh-huh. spending and and what would what would you say you were spending the most amount of time doing and thinking about in that role um wow probably uh it was that role even though as head head of you know chief hr officer i was recruiting that was what it was all about we were in the shadows of google apple facebook twitter when i was there it was an arms race for talent it was ridiculous counter offer craziness frenzy but what I was also what I was also really struggling with was being trying to anticipate our growth, because I, I I could recruit if I know what I need to recruit for I can go get it. But when a manager comes to me and says I need fifty people next month, I'm gonna be like, Are you kidding me? You're just telling me that now? Like I need to know that three months ago. That it's not how this works, especially technical talent. And so I was struggling to try to get my leaders to have better foresight into what their talent needs were going to be in the future. And that was, that was uh, in retrospect, it was probably unfair of me to expect that, but they're all really frustrated at me that I wasn't recruiting as fast. My team wasn't helping them recruit and close candidates as fast, even though we're in the middle of an arms race. And we saw it because we saw the data because we had all the LinkedIn. We, we, we knew who had what jobs open, how many recruiters they had, how fast they hired and all those kinds of things. Like we knew all the data, but the, the challenge is, when you're building a company in hyper growth is you don't want to grow too fast because then your burn exceeds your, you know, your, your income and your profit and you could, you know, fall off a cliff too fast. And a lot of companies that were growing in the, the spurt of sort of like the, the time that I was at LinkedIn, sort of 2009 through 2015, a lot of companies that were going through the hyper growth had also been working when the dot-com bubble burst and had been burned, like burned a lot. You know, and so they're like, oh, that was that, that that's very close in the rear view mirror. You follow what I'm saying? So 
that was sort of like, to, to what extent do we put our foot on the gas recruit? To what extent do we sort of go carefully, right? And so, and, and that leads into the, the second thing that occupied my mind sure a lot, Matt, was that was, when do I know that a job has outgrown someone's capacity? Uh, particularly, you know, when, when you're growing that fast, you've got probably 30 really critical roles in your company and, you're always, and they're growing. They're adding people. Like every one of my leadership team at one point, we're managing more as individuals than we've ever managed in our lifetime. I probably managed maybe an organization of 25 before I got to LinkedIn. Blink, I'm managing 250. Like what? 250 people in HR. Like I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, uh, know how to deal with all that. Not, neither did anyone on my team. But some people can handle the scale and some people can't. And as the, our CEO, Jeff Weiner at the time said, have you ever seen a pitcher go to the coach? Hey, coach, can you take me out? Because this, uh, this game's a little you know, too stressful for me. I'd like to be replaced. Nobody ever asks to be taken out. So we had to try to you know, monitor as, you know, with gravitas and care you know, and say, to what extent, can, if some development is given to this person, can they grow? To what extent is like, no, this person, the job's way exceeded what they're capable of. And now you've got, you know, you've got to deal with, the challenge is, okay, so what do we do? The job just outgrew them. Do we put them, someone over them? Can they handle that? Can their ego handle it? So that was, those are some of the, you know, if I'm honest, those are some of the real hard things that I, that I thought of a lot, you know, as we were growing really fast. I love that. That's hard I mean, stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard stuff because it's obviously you, you grow care and love for people as you're growing up teams. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a crazy concept to think about, but not everybody's equipped for, I mean, it's, it's not a fault at anybody and it's not necessarily a benefit, but some people are not prepared to grow at all scales. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're superhero. They're just prepared to grow remarkably quick. Whereas some people are better in the maintenance mode of different things as well too. And, and some people just get outgrown from their, I mean, it's, 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 it's a, it's a harsh reality, but it's also a very healthy reality that I think people, you know, it's as leaders, it's not always easy, but it's certainly a lot of times the right decision at times. So it's, it's, uh, it's tough stuff. So. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I think the, sometimes I think the best attributes that, that I've looked for in leaders as, as we were growing is, you know, people that ask the questions that you're asking, people who are self-aware, people like, I know I don't know this stuff. People like, can you help me? You know, people who can ask for help. You know, those are the people that you want. The people that's like, no, 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 I got it. I know this. What do you mean you know that? You've never done it before. Oh yeah, I know how to do that. Really? How do you, like, those are the people I, I make me nervous because they're going to go over a cliff and not tell you until they've gone off the cliff. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, you want the people to go, oh, there's a cliff coming up. What do I do? And like, okay, I can help you. You know, I can, we can figure this out. Versus, oh, I got it, I got it, whoops, oh, I don't got it. Now you've got massive recovery to do. And maybe the business hurts, maybe you lose a customer. You know, there's just, uh, that, that's tough. But yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's all part of the you know, leadership muscle that we got to build over time, right? So let's talk about the book. Give me the rundown. Oh, man. So, you know, this whole conversation is really a big part of my book. It's basically, I probably about three years ago, I've been given talks around the world and people say, Hey, where's your book? Where's your book? I'm like, what do you mean? They go, where's your book? I'd buy your book. Go, well, it's right here in my head. So what, <laughs> what I was getting really frustrated with, and I've gone increasingly frustrated with as I go around the world, helping people build what I call compelling talent solutions. Like let's be more creative, you know? And, and the question I love to ask before I give a lot of talks to a lot of, especially non-human resource executives is 
what's the what's the number one way you create value in an organization? And they go, well, it's people, of course. I go, okay, so if people is the number one way you create value in an organization, can you tell me that the best systems in your company are the ones helping your people do better jobs? Because I bet you bought an accounting system before you bought any people systems. I oh, bet you put more Steve, money in your I'm sales my, tracking system. I'm losing my mind over this because – I we need to have uh, we need to we need to have a friggin five hour long podcast. Um, I uh, I'm delivering <laughs> a talk and that's one of my opening bits is oh I love it. Keep going. Sorry, I don't mean to cut it off, but yeah, this, yeah. Is, this okay. is like surreal. So, let's, so let me and and, and I, I will I would love to be like your Wizard of Oz behind the curtain feeding you lines because then the next line is so if talents the number one way you create value, is it the first thing you talk about in every staff meeting or is it the last thing on the agenda and you don't get to it so you punt it till next quarter? You know, oh, the succession plan, yeah, really important. Oh, yeah. You know, people are number one, except we never really talk about it. Is the first thing that you need as a company, is it, is it the first thing that you talk about when you're together as an organization? Is it the number one operating priority or is it sales, new product, engineering, M&A strategy? No, that's usually what most people do. So- you know, is it any wonder why people are frustrated with HR, why they're frustrated with recruiting? Because they say it, but they don't really invest in it and they don't put the time into it, if that makes any sense. Oh, so, but, but anyway, this is sort of what, what fueled me to write this book was I am so tired of reading how the marketing of the future work is so dismal. It's like your job's going away. Robots are coming. Everyone's stressed out. Everyone's disengaged. I'm like, no, the future work is really dynamic, but we need to think about it differently. So what I tried to build was a template for professionals to think of their careers differently through the future work model that I think is inspiring. And then also helping organizations craft with dozens and dozens of examples and stories of people doing really innovative things like the Spotify example I gave you, like Duke basketball or like, you know, college basketball I gave you like, you know, or there's another, there's another example I give where, you know, there's a whole industry that's built around the model, come here and then please leave. And, and the better the job you get, the better we look. And that's consulting. If you go to EY, you know, Deloitte, you know, Accenture, Bain, McKinsey, all those companies are built so that you only work there three to five years. And when you leave, the better the job you get, the easier it is to recruit new grads for them. Because look, you were here, you got a better job. And then they go back to college and go, hey, look, you know, uh, Matt was here, he crushed. And then he got a job over there at, you know, fill in the blank, cool, hot new company. And, and so that's their model. And so what I try to do with WorkQuake is say, listen, it, you know, COVID-19 has given us the best opportunity to rebuild a better model work that's more inspiring, that's not soul-sucking, soul-crushing, it's not devastating. But we got to ask ourselves, is keeping people a long time really the right goal? Maybe our goal should be, instead of keeping people a long time, our goal should be, let's create the best experiences for people while they're here, however long that is. And we know they're not going to be here as long tomorrow as they were yesterday. So let's build a, you know, a better ramp for people so they can onboard quicker, make a bigger impact faster. Let's get closer to university so we can get better interns. So we can just cycle new people in here faster. You know, let's understand how we can build a new model that's, that's more satisfying. And I started this book out of a, an example of when I, when I quit uh, Electronic Arts. It was, it's, a, it's the story that's sort of my introduction uh, of WorkWake, which is essentially – I was electronic arts. My job was basically cut in half because of the economic crisis. It wasn't electronic arts fault. It wasn't my fault, but my job was half as interesting. So I entertained a new opportunity. I decided I'm going to go uh, interview at LinkedIn. I get the job and I'd only been at electronic arts for like a year and a half. 
And my boss was like all devastated, but she was also excited for me. But she was going to get beaten up by her boss, the CEO, because I shouldn't have left as a key employee. I shouldn't have left before my, I don't know what, three to five year window. And so I was like, why are we living this false dance for career expectations where I, you know, I'm going to leave. I know I'm going to leave. You know, I'm not going to stay and you're not going to promise that you're going to keep me here. So why are we having that conversation? Why do we have a different one? And it was that whole experience of like, why aren't they celebrating that? I just got like a dream come true job at LinkedIn. And why am I made to feel like crap? You know what I'm saying? So I was like, and that really got under my craw for probably a couple of years to the point where I was like, hey, I got to write this down because this is a different model of work and we need to be more honest about it. And so if you, you know, if this conversation, I guess I would say to listeners, the conversation you and I have is all, it's like littered with workquake stuff. If this is interesting to you, my book, I think is going to be just compelling, uh, compellingly interesting, I hope for, uh, for folks if this is interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh- no, it's it's uh, personally it's it's fascinating to me. It's something that I, I I I absolutely love. I mean, kind of our our swing on it in the video interviewing space is around the conversation of people are so focused and so out there about all the different things that they hire for and they look for and culture and fit and talent and all these different things. Yet and still, one of the very first things that they do is look at qualifications of three to five years experience on their resume. So the statement is, you know, right. you, you care about hiring for culture and fit and you care about people, people, people. And and, and you don't, you know, you, you say that and then in your hiring systems, you knock people out without even actually getting to the person. And so it's it's something yeah. that I, I, it's a topic that I never like brief background. First business was in landscaping and lawn care as a high school college student and then launching this. Yeah. And it's like now, uh-huh. now it's something that I, 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 I've fallen in love with this topic, this conversation. So Steve, you got me all fired yeah. up. You got me all hot and bothered. This is good. Well, listen, stuff. you got, you got to bring me back. So let me, let me leave you with another way of looking at or sort of reframing what you just mentioned. And this is how, when I'm talking organizations and I'll say, you ask any hiring manager in any company, what is the shelf life value of a job description? How long after you write a job description does it really hold true? Or ask anyone who started a new job. Hey, they told you the job was this and you're two months into it. Is it what they told you? And everyone's like, no, it changed because that's the nature of business today. And so what I'm starting to see, and this is really, really interesting. And I can't wait for like, let's roll the tape out two or three years from now. Cause I, what I believe is going to happen is going to be the following, which is I think in the next two to three years, companies, you know, thought leaders, you know, forward thinking companies are going to hire someone as much on what they can learn compared to what they know, because oh, we know the job's going to change. Come on, preach, and baby. If, this is good. Yeah, I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you look at, okay, let's look at every unicorn that's out there today. Uh, 95% of the unicorns are not in the business they set out to be in. LinkedIn's another example. LinkedIn was like, this is like an address book. It's like, uh, you know, keeping your, your network together. It wasn't, they didn't build that with any ideas of recruiting. And then someone said, hey, can I use that to post jobs? I'm just like, oh uh, yeah, sure, why not? And so boom, now a business is born. So if we're in a world where your business will inevitably change, why do, what, you know, your biggest asset is people who can change as your business changes. Because if you're gonna wipe everyone out and hire new skills, no one's gonna wanna work with you because they know, oh yeah, I've got the new skill now, but when the world changes, you're gonna wipe me out and bring someone new in. So I'm not gonna go work for you. I'm gonna go work for the person that's gonna make me better for tomorrow. And that's why I really believe, like I said, People are going to start hiring almost more on what you can know than what you do know. And that's super powerful. And what that means is 
And for someone who's a you know leader of a 10-person startup, for, for the sake of example, that means you need to design work that is learning-based. Not like we're going to bring the professor in from Cambridge or Harvard, Stanford. No, that means you're working on new stuff and new projects and new systems and new tools with new people and new methodologies all the time because you're growing and growing. And hopefully there's a way to do that that's value additive for the business too, right? And that's that's got to be the way you grow, you know? And so it's like, I am so clear that that is the, the, the future of business right now. And when I go into these big companies, they're like, no, no, no. You know, they're trying to like debate me on this. Like there is no debate. It's just a matter of, it's not if, it's when, you know? It's like, that is true. You know, your company's changing. You know, your, your chat, like Reed Hoffman one time, the chairman and founder of LinkedIn was once asked a great question and his answer was perfect. His question was, Who's your biggest competitor? Like, who worries you the most, Reed? You got this really weird business model, recruiting, subscriptions, marketing, advertising. Like, what, what company worries you the most? And his answer was, I worry more about the company that hasn't started yet than one that's out there. A company that could come out of nowhere and change the paradigm and making my business value proposition obsolete. Now, that's like, whoa. You know, like, that's true. Here's the, you know, the one of the leading angel investors on the planet, and that's how he sees the world. So, how do you survive that world? You gotta have people that can always learn and pivot and change with you, right? And that's why Spotify does what they do. And that's why, you know, Chipotle, here's another one. Here's a restaurant organization whose, whose career paths, they know people are not going to work at Chipotle the rest of their lives. They know that. They're like, hey, we are a transition stopping point for you to get from somewhere point A to point B. And, and while you're you know going to school or whatever, so we're gonna invest in your learning Whatever you want to do, we're going to give it to you for free. You only have to work here like a couple days and then we're going to start paying you. And if it's English as a second language, we're going to put your whole family through ESL training, you know, and that, that's progressive. That's like they know that the more they give, they may not keep people longer, but the better people are going to go there because the people that want to grow and invest themselves for the future. And they say, we want to help people's on their career journey. We know it's not going to be here long term, but we're okay with that, you know. And that's super mature. That's super mature. And I think that's way more and more organizations are going to have to play like it or not. You know, it's, it's so good. And, uh, I love, I love Reid Hoffman's answer on that is like, it's, it's less about who I'm competing with now. It's about who's coming in the future as well, too. I mean, you think about that's, that's been something that, um, you know, take the horror of what COVID, you know, the last year of the pandemic was and, and the negatives of it. What's changed is the rapid pace at which people are evolving and changing. And also that kind of all the rules went out the window of how we do things. And so that just even yeah. furthers that as well, too. So that's 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 yeah. uh, it's so good. Um, I know. Steve, my uh, my my favorite question on the planet, and I'm going to ask this in a kind of a two part way. My favorite question on the planet is okay. what gets you out of bed in the morning. Okay. And the other, the other swing I want you to add on that as well is uh, what sort of influence do you want to leave or the legacy that if you had to, if you had the choice to pick the legacy that you left, what would you want it to be? Okay. So go back to the first one. So what gets me out of bed in the morning? Yes. Is that the one or what keeps me in bed in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, I've had a couple sleep in days during COVID, so I can get with that. But, uh, but, uh, but uh, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning? I would have to say just that I have just an unbelievable portfolio of new experiences, uh, interesting people, interesting projects that I just can't wait to get working on. And right now, like if you ask me like today, uh, my book uh, ships on August 3rd and I just can't wait 
to have this unlock the opportunity for me to have more conversations like we're having right now, Matt, which is just share more hope, share more, you know, nudge people a little bit, provoke people a little bit. Like, Hey, you know, the data is not showing that people are staying very long. Like, why are you still believing that? Like that, that sort of makes me feel alive, I guess is, is another way of saying it. Like I had a mentor once help me figure out like what I should do with my life. When I left LinkedIn, I was like, what should I do? I don't know what I should do. He's like, well, what makes you feel most alive? I go, what do you mean most alive? He goes, what do you do? Uh, what are you doing when the hair stands up on your arms? Like, what are you doing? I was like, ah, okay. It's what I'm teaching. Like, that's really what I love to do. And I just, I feel so fortunate to be able to do that uh, and have a family that, you know, allows me to do all that stuff and just, yeah. So it's probably, probably all those things combined. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. And the last, last piece of that is uh, if you, if you had a choice to sort of leave, leave the legacy that you would love to leave, what would that be? Um, gosh, I guess for me, um, the, the legacy would be, you know, always um, that the people are always asking questions and always being so curious, just always be curious. You know, like I, I don't know that I got to the best job in my profession, you know, and I, I say that with all humility that being in the top HR role at LinkedIn, for me, there's no other job in human resources I'd want to do on the planet. Like I got to the top of the mountain. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have, you know, the best pedigree in the world. Like I didn't, you know, like I said, I, w I wasn't spending hours and hours in the library, but I was always curious about people and trying to help other people get to where they wanted to get. And I think that really, really served me well because my network is, you know, is always helped pull me, you know, as much as I've pushed, I think my network's always helped pull me so that an opportunity like that sort of landed in my lap, sort of out of the blue. Um, so I, and I hope that, you know, my, the other, you know, on the professional side, you know, I think great leadership should be measured by how great did the people that work for you do in their careers. And when I look at the people that have worked for me that are doing really great things right now, like just, it makes me super proud. Uh, and I hope that I can continue to do that for the people that I coach and mentor and so forth today. That's so good. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, Steve, for people that want to uh, reach out to you, uh, follow along, follow your content, any any this or that, what's the best way for them to give you a holler or follow along with the amazing things that you're doing? Uh, anyone's got follow-up questions, connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, happy to engage with you there. I've got ton of content, as you mentioned a few times. Thank you, Matt, on TikTok. That's sort of more shorter, and I, I usually have a humorous angle to a lot of those things, but I have a whole series there on true stories from corporate America, which is uh, scary, but tr they're all very true stories. And then uh, stevecadigan.com, my website. If you know, I've got tons of archived articles I've written, interviews I've given, uh, lots of videos, webinars I've done, classes I've taught, and you know, get on my mailing list. And super excited to hopefully, you know, spread, you know, join me in trying to make the future work better. And that's what I'm trying to do with WorkQuake. It's like, hey, let's lock arms, you know, the people like you, Matt, like we need more people, forces for good. Like, I love how you're like, what do you think I should, you know, how do you think I should be thinking as a leader about growing my business and what are paying attention to? Like, that's because you're open to trying new stuff. And that's what we need in this era of, you know, experimentation going forward. So, yeah. Thank, thanks again for for having me on the show, Matt. Absolutely, Steve. This was amazing. This was uh, this was such a fun episode. And again, thank you, Wade, as always, for the amazing connection. And uh, Steve, until next time. All right, man. Bring me back.
you just listened to an amazing episode on the Matt Baxter show. It had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the guests that I have and the stories that we get to tell and the smack talking we get to have. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to, feel free to subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Check us out at themattbaxtershow.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matt C. Baxter, Twitter, or Facebook as well, too. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, whether it's through an email on the website or whether it's through any of the social platforms. I do my best to get back to people as soon as I can. But thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy. Feel free to send feedback in any way. And don't be afraid to share the Matt Baxter Show. We're very excited to have you as a listener and hope you continue to listen as well. Thanks a ton. Bye-bye.